Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I'm your host, Arden O'Connor, and I'm joined by my co-host, Diana. Hey! We are really excited to have a guest today. Greg Henning is joining us. He's a friend. He's somebody who's had a very illustrious career. Welcome, Greg, to our podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the chance to be here. We're excited to have you. And I, you know, just by way of background, I'll give the audience a little bit of context, but I then I'm going to jump in right away to let you tell your own story. So Greg has worked in the DA's office. He's had an outstanding educational career. I have to say, with his very impressive resume, the thing that jumped out at me as the most exciting, given the amount of crime shows that I watch, is the fact that he was the member of the homicide response team and chief of the gang unit. So um, with that entree, I know now, Greg, you run a very different different company at Henning Strategies. And and my understanding is you do a lot in the world of um, crisis management and legal strategies for people who are in trouble. So please tell us, Greg, how have you become the real life version of Michael Clayton or Ray Donovan, hopefully with a little (laughs) less violence, however you want to say it? Uh, Thank you. So yeah, my background was um, I went to Harvard and UVA Law School and went into a career as a prosecutor. And I did that for close to a dozen years. I was the former chief of the gang unit in Boston and also worked in the homicide response team. And the way that I came up with this idea along with my partners was we realized that in our career we'd spent many hours, many late nights dealing with critical incidents. And they were for law enforcement or for victims' families or for the media that needed to cover a story. And rather than going out from being a DA and turning into a a traditional defense attorney, we wanted to offer our skill set and our abilities to families and companies that really needed to deal with critical incidents at a moment's notice and needed to be able to have someone that understood how the press, the public, law enforcement, and the court system know how to deal with the situation. And that was our background. And so we started the firm a couple of years ago, and it is a fixer firm. We help deal with critical incidents and problems for families and companies, often that their traditional legal counsel can't deal with, either because they haven't dealt with it before or because they're not familiar with all the issues. Thank you. So can you be a little more um, clear about what's a critical incident? What would you describe? Give me some examples. Yeah, and, and it runs the gamut. So for individuals, we've dealt with families that have a child or a young adult that's at college, and there's an accusation of sexual impropriety or there's a drinking incident or some other sort of uh, inappropriate conduct and there might be school or law enforcement or civil liability that they're looking at. And particularly for people that have young adults um, whose name or family background makes them a bigger target, the issues can be even larger than for someone who's at a school and is relatively not well known. So for individuals it can be anything from criminal to civil issues. We deal with people that have marital um, discord or people that have a significant other in addition to their spouse, and that causes a whole other set of problems. And they need help navigating the system, whether it's the court system or negotiating some sort of 
mutual parting of the ways in a way that keeps the profile down and keeps media attention away. So that might be a family situation. For companies, we do a lot of internal investigations. It could be that a company thinks an employee or an executive is doing something wrong, stealing inappropriate relationship between people that are in the same chain of command, or it could be something that's much more um, criminal and they need to determine if there's been a fraud or some sort of misconduct using company resources or company money. So it really does span the spectrum of personal issues, company issues, the critical incident response, homicide response, which is what we did before when we were DAs. You literally are carrying a phone or a pager and you get called in the middle of the night when something bad happens in the city. So we would get in a car and drive to the crime scene and start the investigation from the moment the scene was set up. And so we offer that for families and for companies. Any of our clients can reach us at any point when something happens. And often you can't wait until regular business hours. And so we answer the call because we know if they're calling us, it must be something very, very important. That makes sense. Are there cases you won't take or you couldn't see yourself being helpful? Well, most cases that come our way, we can be helpful in in a couple of different ways. Sometimes it's a specialty that we don't possess, but we have a network of people, much like yourselves, um, that can connect the client with necessary resources. And part of that is from our background in law enforcement and from the court system, but also working on political campaigns and dealing with media and media strategy for clients. So there are cases that might come our way where we can help guide the client in the right direction and find discrete partners that we can work with in order to help solve the problem. But we're in a a pretty um, lucky position in that if a case comes our way and we don't think we can handle it, we know a very vast network of people that do have the expertise. And that's why clients come to us a lot. They need to do the diligence and one-stop shopping to know that they're going to get a person or a team that really knows the ins and outs of a critical situation from the media strategy, or if there's not going to be a media strategy, how to keep something out of the media, and the legal implications, both civil and criminal, and also people that have discretion. You know, we've been paid and had a career keeping secrets and making sure that information is not disclosed, and that sort of confidentiality and discretion is really important for our clients because we are still operating as attorneys. Got it. You know, one question I had, Greg, is it sounds like given the plethora of what you're dealing with, you may get all different types of folks who come to your firm. You know, as you know, our company deals a lot with affluent um, individuals who have an array of behavioral health challenges as well as high profile individuals. And I'm curious to understand from your perspective, you know, what is unique about that demographic when it comes to crisis situations? So the demographic you're talking about has additional issues uh, that the typical person may not. And it may be civil exposure, literally a financial impact if uh, a person accuses them of something or if they're in the crosshairs of an accusation and the party that's accusing them knows that they come from wealth. And so it makes them be a bigger target. And that target could be for an investigation purpose, meaning somebody's attorney on the other side needs to know more information or wants to press our client on something because they know they have financial resources. But it can also mean the way that that client um, shows him or herself, for instance, in a school setting. We talk with a lot of families and, and young people, particularly in college, about not being flashy with their background, with family connections, with family wealth, and helping to train people to avoid those critical situations. Because being a target, especially nowadays with the advent of social media and how widespread that is, When something is captured, and if it becomes public, whether it's published on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, that can follow people for generations. And so that's a concern that people need to learn about. And often the younger generation is most familiar with social media, 
but they don't understand the implications as much as people who have been through it. And we've spent our career doing that. We've used social media and data and evidence gathered to help support a criminal prosecution. And now we're helping to work with families and companies to make sure that those sorts of things can't turn around and bite them. And for any family that has a significant amount of wealth or a significant amount of assets, all of those things can become the target either of an attorney on the other side or somebody that wants to take advantage of them, whether it's by fraud or by some legitimate claim. And so the, the target, I think, is the biggest differentiator. It just makes a huge target for that family and that client. It's an interesting point, and I just want to pick up on one theme that you mentioned because it's, I think, so um, specific to our clientele. You know, what do you do with the young person who maybe is naive about posting, you know, I'm away on vacation and they come from a family of means and, you know, basically revealing that their home is not occupied? You know, how, how I think about the types of situations our clients come to us with, um, and I also think about the permanency of the internet. Are you able to help families in those situations? A hundred percent. And the best way to do that is to get at the problem before it becomes a real problem. So I've worked with families who have a, a child in high school that's applying to college and is going to be moving off into some college. And they literally need a training in order to understand the implications that are involved in posting or tweeting or letting people know your location or where you're on vacation, how much you have things that you've purchased, it can make you a target in any number of ways. So we do work with people that are in that situation. Um, the permanence of it, I think, is also a big deal. As you indicated, when somebody posts something about their location or where they're traveling, there's public information everywhere, whether it's online or through other public sources. And if you can find out where somebody isn't, that makes their home and their assets and other information a target. Um, so things like that are most essentially dealt with before it becomes a problem and sometimes it's the things you don't know that you don't know and that's where we come in we've dealt with things on both ends looking for information and trying to exploit data and our background and knowledge of how law enforcement and the courts and the media look for that data being able to train a young person or a family in a critical situation and to avoid that incident happening is a very valuable part of what we provide what a service. I'm sitting here thinking I could probably use that for my own <laughs> life, right? It, what do it, I not want to put on my phone? <laughs> the, what's on your phone? Um, what's on your social media feed? What sort of things you say to people in posts on Facebook and how that can come back later on? Even your likes on any sort of social media platform. If somebody were to run for public office or they're going for an appointment to some federal level position, or even if they're going to apply for a job and there's a more thorough background search that's done, all of those things can get turned up. We do that for companies and for uh, financial executives and professionals that are looking to make private placement of money. Sometimes they just want to know more information about the company they're going to acquire or the executive team that they're dealing with. And so what we call non-financial due diligence is an important part of what we offer. And sometimes it's turning up things that lawyers or accountants or the people managing the deal don't look into because they're not used to searching for it. But we are because that's what we've been doing for our career. So you're looking for things that indicate character. It may be character. It might be that somebody had a particular political position and um, especially in this day and age, somebody made a comment or an inappropriate comment about some sort of media post or a news story. Um, college kids will often say things and post things not realizing that five, 10 years down the line employers might find that. 
And it's becoming much more frequent now that somebody goes through your Twitter timeline or goes through your Facebook posts, especially when they're public. And those sort of things can come back to bite you. And for the non-financial due diligence part, it can be public records and publicly available information. We sometimes will do sit-down interviews with the executives of a company that's going to be acquired so that our client can learn more about areas of interest to them. We have a background. When I say we, I mean myself and my two partners doing interrogations and interviews. We've spent thousands of hours, literally, in grand jury witness preparation, jury trials, prepping witnesses for a jury trial. And the presentation of information is just as important in the reverse, meaning how is the information going to sound to the public or a consumer or the media if it comes out? And that's where our background, which is a little bit different from the traditional lawyer, that's where that comes into play. I have a quick question just on this thread, um, and I know we've got some other great questions coming up, but I, I think one of the thoughts I have is, you know, given your work, if you think about being a parent or you think about our listeners who have loved ones, you know, is your recommendation to stay off as much social media as possible? Is it just to have a very um, neutral stance on anything? I mean, are there any guiding tips? Because I know this is a really hot button issue for many of our clients right now. It's a great question, and it's one where the answer changes, I think, every couple of years. So hmm. I used to tell people, if you just have a social media account where you're observing and you're not really interacting, Facebook helps you know when your friends and their family have children or get married, those sorts of things, you're really just observing information. But it's also become recent that when somebody has a background investigation done or when somebody's going to be attacked or investigated, even who you are friends with or who you follow on your social media has become an area of controversy. So if you're on a Twitter account and your Twitter account follows both liberal and conservative news outlets, there's some people that would look at your following of those conservative outlets as you being supportive of some political position. Um, so it sounds, I guess, boring and a little bit disconnected from the world to say as little social media as possible is best. I think that's hard to do nowadays because social media is such an important part of news, staying connected with friends. But to the extent possible, anything that is posted, whether it's a picture or a tweet or a like or a comment, I think the guiding principle should just be, what will my employer in 10 years think of this? What will my grandparents think of this photograph? And what will my potential father-in-law or mother-in-law think of this if I get engaged and have a family in the future? And if you use those principles for any sort of social media engagement, it will limit dramatically the sort of things that you post and the sort of things that you comment on. But that's probably the safest, most conservative play. I feel so vindicated right now as an <laughs> aging woman who has no social media because I just came to the computer generation and the phone generation too late. I don't want to sound like I'm disconnected uh, for technology and, I, and that doesn't have a positive benefit. It does. It can become a, you know, it's one of the primary news sources now for, for young people is they're not reading the newspaper on the train. They're catching up on the news by looking at their Twitter feed and finding out what's going on by checking, you know, online sites. That being said, all of it can create a pattern or a history that gets looked into later on. Um, and the, the more exposure I think people have is when they post photographs of themselves with friends at a vacation spot, or they talk about the three-week trip that they're going to take when they're a registered voter and they have some assets that are publicly available, so you can find out what their address is, and now you have information that they're away for three weeks. Those sorts of things can get exploited. I, I remember, you know, 
When I was younger, my father and mother used to say, when a family member passed away and the obituary and the funeral arrangements ended up in the newspaper, they would always find some neighbor to house sit. And you don't figure it out until you're an adult, but they're house sitting to make sure the house doesn't get broken into. It's kind of a depressing thought, but it's the world that we live in today. It is. On a different note, I am wondering about sort of public perceptions, public relations. That's part of what you're doing, I would imagine. It is, yep. And as a former lawyer myself who taught younger attorneys not to apologize, how can you in public apologize without um, assuming a legal responsibility or appearing you know, really not authentic? Great question. And you probably would need a whole separate show to cover the art of a public (laughs) apology. But the first answer is a lawyer's answer, which is it depends. And it depends on what the situation is. One of the things that we offer clients that I think is really valuable, and we've heard it both from lawyers and from people on the PR side, is that we have a background that blends an understanding of the media with attorney-client privilege because we are providing legal guidance to our clients. So understanding how a media strategy or even a non-media strategy to keep things as quiet as possible, how that fits in with your legal strategy is essential. And so we work with lawyers at some of the top firms in the country on clients and cases that they have because they need to do just what you're saying. They need to figure out a way to say something without it becoming an implication that can be used against them. Sometimes that's done through a spokesperson. So it could be a statement that's made from a person speaking on behalf of the client or the company. Sometimes if the legal strategy is about mitigating the damage and not about whether or not they did it or whether or not they're responsible, you can do a form of an apology. Um, I think the biggest problem happens when your PR and media strategy or comments to the press go in the opposite direction. An absolute apology and then you walk into court and you're doing an absolute denial of any responsibility or any of the accusations. So it's a case-by-case basis, but understanding that there are implications is the first step and being able to craft something that can address media inquiry while also not getting you in legal hot water that's exactly why people call us because they realize especially nowadays it can't just be hiring a lawyer and it can't just be hiring someone who does pr that doesn't have a legal background if something might implicate an investigation or civil or criminal suit those things need to be running hand in hand they need to be working together in the same direction that makes such sense Absolutely. Well, I'm going to ask a question, and I'm sure there's many of these to, for you to consider, but I'm curious about a situation that you learned from during the course of your career. It can be with your current firm, it could be in the past, but I, we like to offer uh, learning to our listeners through other people's experiences. Yeah. I think in my previous career, um, I was a prosecutor in Suffolk County, which is Boston, Revere, Winthrop, and Chelsea. Um, I think the thing that you often forget when you're living in a city is just how different the communities are throughout the city, whether it's neighborhood by neighborhood or the adjacent community. There's just a whole different perspective that people have. And so you have to plan out your case, your strategy, your investigation, being nimble and thinking in a diversified way because it's not one size fits all, especially nowadays where everybody gets to have an opinion and gets to post their opinion and gets to say what they think, sometimes with anonymity. You need to be able to understand that you might have um, press looking at it one way, a community partner looking at it another way, and the partners or clients that you're working with looking at it in a different perspective. So the diversity of thought and perspective, I think, is what I gathered from being a prosecutor. And in the private sector, 
um, what I call the quiet sector, because that's sort of the area that we operate in, there are there is a value on having a higher level of discretion and being a more nimble, um, smaller operation, which is one of the things we talk to people about. We're never going to be doing a full service legal operation like Ropes and Gray or Goodwood Proctor or Davis Polk or any of those big firms. But sometimes we can offer something that they can't, which is a smaller, more discreet set of people with a different background and a different set of eyes on how to look at something. And that can really offer the client a whole different set of skills and experiences that can help them get out of a gym. That reminds me so much of the work we do when somebody comes in with a specific diagnosis. Humor me for just a sec. Somebody no, comes no, in with a, pers- with a specific diagnosis and clinicians look at a specific set of symptoms with one strategy. What When you look at it from outside possibilities, there might be more than one strategy that is implicated in a certain set of symptoms. And I think that's what I'm hearing from you in the legal and PR sort of blend. It it is. And if you think about it, when uh, a large healthcare operation or a larger institution addresses it, the answer to why do you do it that way is often because that's the way we do it, which is kind of circular logic. Um, it's the way it's been done before is not a justification for picking the right strategy. So for you, your clients and the families come to you because they know you have a wealth of experience, but you also have a different perspective and a different set of experiences than larger operations. And that's the same thing that we're talking to people about. If you are looking for traditional legal systems, a traditional law firm, we are not the place to offer that. We do the sort of things that other attorneys and other firms and other PR people may not have the experience doing because, for lack of a better term, we've gotten our uniform dirty through many, many years of getting called out in the middle of the night, working a case from investigation through prosecution up to a jury trial and the moments when the jury comes in to literally render a verdict and then how that plays in the press and how follow-up inquiries uh, are going to spin out. And so those are all skills that many different groups may have, but not under the same roof. That's amazing. It certainly is fun. It's not what I ever imagined I'd be doing when I was in law school. Well, I can believe that as somebody, you know, who looks at a legal career from a pretty narrow perspective, I'm listening to you going, that sounds actually like a really challenging and invigorating way to use all of your experience. It is. And when you're in law school, there are very few systems set up to teach people how to open up their own business or how to do something that's not the traditional approach. Um, Law schools are designed to teach people how to be practitioners of the law. And that often means going into an existing law firm and practicing law as an associate and working your way up to junior partner and then becoming an equity partner and then you retire. That's the traditional route, that's just what people do. And after spending a dozen years running around crime scenes and picking juries and working on homicide cases, putting evidence into in front of a court, I just, My partners and I just didn't want to go into the traditional legal route because we had been so excited to do our work day after day after day. Every day as a prosecutor is different. And that mindset gives us the ability to do this work really well because every one of my days is different. It's the things that come across my desk are crazy. Um, And I never thought I would enjoy my job as much as I did when I was a, a young prosecutor, but I definitely love this just as much, if not more. I remember when I was a young attorney, I was called into a senior partner's office, and 
I will not say the firm, but he looked over at me over the tips of his glasses, you know, just sort of the top of the glasses and said, Diana, what you don't get is that 90% of the practice of law is drudgery. And you don't seem to want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, if you walked into a first year law school class and told people your life, if you choose this path, is probably going to be drudgery unless you do something else. I don't know why people wouldn't believe it. Because it really is, for many people, true that they look back and either regret it or, as you have done, you're a reformed lawyer, right? You went into a different field after practicing law. Um, and that's the sort of thing that, we, that really sparked our interest in working with families and companies that have these high-need, high-profile crises. It's the most similar thing to the work that we did as prosecutors. And if I had gone into the traditional legal route after leaving the DA's office, I know I would have been miserable. And I just didn't want to do it. So it was a risk that we wanted to take. And it's worked out because we still get to help people like we did as prosecutors. We still represent victims of crime. There are many families out there, you know, affluent families, all the way down to families that have um, financial aid to send their kid to college and their first generation student in a school that have some critical incident where they become a victim, either sexual impropriety or fraud or something with the school where they're accused of something that they didn't do. Those are all a crisis for that family and for that young person. And we still get to represent victims. We just do it from a different perspective. And that's what makes this so rewarding. So our audience includes attorneys, financial professionals, advisors to wealthy families, and some family members, I hope. We like to leave the show with a what we call bits to consider, what advice would you have for these professionals or family members if they are either in crisis or have a client in crisis or in a critical incident? I think the number one piece of advice um, that I would say is to think about legal and financial security as insurance rather than rapid response. If you're dialing 911, the house is already on fire. But if you think about financial advisors, legal professionals, people like yourselves as an insurance policy to be able to address a problem in the very early stages, you're going to help protect yourself and your family much better than if you wait until something has already happened. Um, so I'll often get questions and referrals. I have someone that needs an attorney. And you call them up and you say, what is the issue? And they say, well, two weeks ago. And as soon as that happens, I know there's probably a bigger problem than had they called us two weeks earlier. So especially for families of um, significant means, affluent families, high net worth individuals, family offices, companies of significant size, identifying the resources to deal with a problem in the very early stages, or just to have the person that you can call and say, I think there might be a problem. How should we avoid it turning into a real issue? Those sorts of resources are crucial and can really help eliminate a huge scope of the problem either in the media or in the courts or just in the company or the family itself. So the takeaway, I think, is to think about these resources, both what your operation offers and other vendors and, and resources. Think about them like an insurance policy to help protect against the problem. It's a great note to end on. Greg, thanks so much for your participation today. We really appreciate your voice and your authenticity. And, and honestly, most importantly, the service that you're providing to so many families who find themselves in a situation where they're wishing they could bring in the spirit of some TV character. Now we know there is actually somebody who can come in and help 
um, resolve the situation in a kind, compassionate, but also a strategic manner. Uh, Thank you for all the listeners today on Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. We appreciate your support and hope you have a great day. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.